identity fraud, bank account takeover, phishing attempts, all of these crimes are up big in 2021. Andy Shank, Vice President of Fraud and Risk Management Products at Harlan Clark, joins us to discuss how banks and credit unions can better protect themselves from this growing threat. Actionable insights can help power smart decisions. Each week, the BAI Banking Strategies podcast focuses on important issues facing financial services leaders, as well as the emerging trends that are rapidly reshaping the financial industry. I'm Terry Badger, your host and the managing editor at BAI. Pull up a chair and join us. A big upswing in digital transactions is helping to make 2021 a busy year for fraudsters targeting financial institutions. According to a recent TransUnion study, digital fraud attempts from January through April have more than doubled from the final four months of 2020. Andy Shank, former detective and now VP for Fraud and Risk Management Products at Harlan Clark, is with us to talk about the fraud landscape and how banks and credit unions can better protect themselves from a bigger and more emboldened bunch of bad guys out there. Andy, welcome to the BAI Banking Strategies podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So, Andy, you come to financial services fraud prevention by way of law enforcement. Before your life in financial services, starting at a credit union, you spent 15 years with the Indiana State Police, where you worked your way up from trooper to detective. For a good chunk of that time, you were assigned to the FBI to work on white-collar crime cases. How has this experience on the law enforcement side, how has it prepared you for what you're doing now? And maybe how do you look at things differently from other fraud preventers who don't come from that same background? Yeah, it's a great question. There are a lot of parallels between those two sections of my life. So if I see an issue here where we're being scammed or we've got a vulnerability somewhere, I have to compile the evidence that it is truly a problem worthy of addressing and that it can be fixed with any kind of solution. And it's about creating that kind of book of evidence that says this problem is real. Here's the evidence. It's real. Here's the solution I'm proposing to fix this problem. And here is the benefit of in implementing that solution. So that solution may cost us X dollars, but it's going to save us X times two in mitigated fraud. So it's really about putting together that compelling package of evidence where back in the day it was subpoenaed bank documents and nerve-wracking interviews with suspects. And now it's, okay, here's our lost data from the last six months. Here's what proportion of it I think could have been prevented. And if we spend this much money, it'll be better going forward. That's my trial now, is getting to that point with uh, the C-suite folks, the decision makers with the, uh, the checkbook to say, yes, we think Andy put it together a compelling enough case here. Let's protect our customers. Let's protect our clients. And that is my battle these days. Fraud in the financial world, of course, has been around as long as there's been a financial world, right? So we hear about exotic scams and elaborate schemes aimed at separating people and institutions from their money. The more colorful the undertaking, it seems, the, the bigger the headline. But I'd expect those aren't the ones creating the biggest pain points for banks and their customers. So what are the meat and potatoes of the fraud world, if you will? The crimes that are crimping the bottom line most, and, and how have those been changing over time? Yeah, when I was at the credit union, I always looked at fraud in two very broad buckets. There was the low impact, high frequency bucket, and then the high impact, low frequency bucket. So essentially, you've got the frauds that occur every day, and each one is not a huge deal. And that's your card fraud. That's your check fraud. Those are just kind of the, the meat and potatoes, as you said, of banking. 
the other category is the low frequency but high impact fraud. So that's your contact center fraud where a social engineer is calling in and talking their way into people's accounts and initiating wire transfers. That's your high value customers who are falling victim to fraud schemes, whether it's romance fraud or lottery fraud or some sort of relative in distress overseas that they need to send money to. And traditionally, I think FIs focus probably a little too much of their energy and resources on the everyday high frequency, low impact frauds. They've got all of these systems out there that will detect and hopefully stop card fraud and check fraud. Where I've always felt the larger shark in the sea are those less frequent ones, but have the higher dollar impact. But how have they changed over time? I truly think the internet is what has been the driving force to shift the focus or where the focus should be from the card and check fraud over to the social engineering, the account takeovers, all of those things. When you couple the internet and all of the ingenuity that it has allowed bad guys to bring to the equation and also an aging population that doesn't see those kind of schemes coming a mile away and is very apt to be defrauded by them, it's created somewhat of a, a very dangerous mix these days. Digital banking was growing fast pre-COVID, and it's uh, certainly accelerated during the pandemic. I don't know that anyone expects that to slow down anytime soon. Being able to do your banking on your phone or on your laptop, wherever, whenever you want, that convenience is very appealing from a customer perspective. But I'd imagine that the same convenience is a bit more complicated for the bank or the credit union fraud teams, right? It absolutely is. I remember vividly many instances just staring at a computer in our anti-money laundering system saying, is this good? Is this person truly traveling overseas right now and starting to do you know, this kind of electronic transfer or they're doing ATM withdrawals in two different states over a 12-hour period? And it is very difficult to decode what is good and what is bad. Because the second I declare something fraud, it ends up being a family on a road trip and they were crossing state lines and making transactions everywhere. But the second I think it's a family on a road trip or a traveling businessman, it ends up being a fraud scheme. So it is very difficult for banking personnel to decode what everyone's activities are. You flash back 30, 40 years ago in the, I wouldn't say the good old days, but a different day, you know, where everybody took a two-week vacation every year. You called your bank and said, hey, I'm going to be traveling. If you see any checks clearing, you know, in Yellowstone, then that's legitimate. These days, everybody's mobile. Everybody's on their phone. Uh, they're not waiting to get home to place that order. They're doing it from the train as they, you know, cross four states. So it's an extremely difficult puzzle to fix on, on a daily basis for FIs of all sizes. Thinking about this in, in terms of supply and demand, the demand for easier transactions creates a greater supply of ways for crooks to commit fraud. It's certainly possible to make things too tight, to make digital transactions too hard. But looking at the ease of use course that we're on now, is there, in your view, a natural limit on making transactions too easy? And are we anywhere close to that line yet? I do. I do think there's a natural limit to it, and I do think we're getting closer to it. But I always do think back to one of my days working in New York City 20 years ago and having debates with IT folks who were much smarter than me saying that uh, voice over IP communications will never be possible. There's just not the bandwidth out there. And I didn't know which side I fell on at the time. But clearly, if I said it wasn't possible, I'd be wrong because that's what we're doing right now. So I don't want to sound like the old guy that says, you know, we'll never be faster than we are right now or we don't need to be faster than we are right now. But I do think 
we are darn near instantaneous these days. So I don't know how much faster things can get. And my fear is that, uh, and it's not really a fear, but I, I feel like there is going to be a reckoning at some point in the next decade or so where some of the responsibility for fraud incidents will have to be passed back to the consumer. And the reason that bad guys go after these kind of transactions and target specific consumers is the speed of these transactions. So if we don't slow it down or put some kind of regulator on it, more fraud is going to just continue to continue to slip through. So to date, most of the consumer protection laws have been written, is, as you guessed it, to protect the consumer. But what do you do when the consumer played a role in their own fraud incident? You know, when they clicked on that phishing email or gave away their credentials for online banking or gave the one-time passcode to the bad guy or gave the uh, micro-deposit information to a bad guy so their accounts can be linked to a Mule account. Does that consumer deserve to be reimbursed fully for the loss that they helped create? It may sound kind of scroogey of me, but I, I don't think so. I, I think everybody these days at least should be in tune to the way that money is transacted and how the speed of it and how it is nearly instantaneous these days. And if you're going to have those kind of functionalities enabled on your account, you have to have some level of responsibility for it at a personal level. So while we're on the topic of speed, one of the biggest fraud-related challenges is the speed at which the bad guys are able to evolve. They don't have to go through a compliance department. They don't have to get over all of the other hurdles that you need to get through on the response side. Is there a way to turn the tables? And if so, how would you do that? It is frustrating at times. They have no penalty for failure on the fraud side. They can send out 100,000 phishing emails, and if none of them click, then there was no postage on those emails. Their bottom line doesn't take a hit. But if they get one or 10 or 100 of those folks to click and follow through with being victimized, then they win. On my side, if I go through that exercise from the earlier question about implementing a new fraud system, and not only does it cost us a lot of money, but it doesn't implement or it doesn't reduce any of the fraud that it was designed to reduce, guess who's getting a talking to? That's me. So it is a difficult balance to strike that I play by rules and have recourses for failure. The bad guys play by no rules, and there's really very little recourse for any failings that they have. As far as turning the tables on that, we have to evolve just as quickly as the bad guys evolve. We're looking into the device level technology of not the person on the other end of that transaction, but the phone or the tablet or the computer they're on. Has that been flagged as risky anywhere in the e-commerce consortium that we belong to? So it really comes down to making sure the customer is who they say they are on the other side of that transaction, but not via the traditional means. Can't focus on knowledge-based authentication or mother's maiden names or things like that. If you're still relying on those kind of things, you are perpetually behind the eight ball. A lot of the financial fraud perpetrators are based overseas, which of course presents jurisdictional challenges on top of all of the other challenges in this. But these fraudsters can't do their thing without internet access. So is that a potential leverage point for fraud protection? What responsibility do you think big tech, ISPs, device makers, and others that are supplying the technology have? What is their responsibility in combating crimes that cost Americans billions of dollars a year? I do think big tech should take some responsibility for how easy it's become and play an active role in making it harder. 
when I look at a run of fraud incidents coming in, I know it's from the same device and they're using 25 different Gmail or Yahoo or Outlook.com email addresses. Why is it so easy to get so many of those? And I get it. Those are free email providers. That's their game is, you know, you show up, you get a new email address. But if Andy at Harlan Clark is able to see that that's the same device coming from the same provider who's doing all of these fraudulent transactions with all 25 of those different email addresses, you don't think Google can see that too? Why do they continue issuing out uh, free email addresses that are specifically and entirely being used to fraud to that individual on the other end? Why are we allowing that same high-risk device and the IP of that device to get email address after email address? Doesn't somebody on the internet service provider side have a role or have a responsibility to start clamping down on those high-risk devices? And, you know, I, I think about this frequently. What is the solution to this? And one of the ones that bounces around in my head all the time is a verified email service. You know, I kind of equate it to TSA PreCheck or the clear memberships that you purchase where you kind of give a little bit on the front end for validation. You know, I am who I say I am. Give me a, a background check. Here's all of my information. And then you become essentially pre-validated to travel. And if I want to transition devices, I've got to make the process to jump it over. But they know who I am on the other end of that transaction. I think big tech can solve the problem of fraud to some extent. It's never going to completely go away. But they can also use those same modalities to fix fraud to make a lot of other processes much simpler for the 99.9% .9 of us who are honest and good consumers. One of the keys to catching the scammers and fraudsters is identifying their operating pattern. And that's no doubt important in preventing fraud attacks as well. How is that changing as technology gets better and how much better can it even get from where we are now? The technology has really helped us in spotting those patterns. The way we look at it for our transactions, more often than not, when bad guys try to attack Harlan Clark, they are trying to order checks. That's kind of our bread and butter for financial instruments. And what we've realized is that the checking account is the limiting reactant of that fraud attempt. So that allows us to really tailor our screening mechanisms to look at the account level, not necessarily at the individual level. So, But we wouldn't be able to do that without the technology that we've engaged to figure out what's compromised and what's not. And that can be at the FI level as well. Figure out what the unique characteristic is of your fraud and really focus in on that. Devise processes that are unique to your circumstance. Put that technology to use and you'll find a dip in your fraud. With all of your years of experience, all of the different sides of this equation that you've been on, state law enforcement, FBI, credit union, and now with Harlan Clark, what's the best advice that you could give banks and credit unions now on how best to protect themselves from fraud? I would say invest in it. It's not money down the tubes to invest in fraud prevention. Your customers or your members will thank you later when you prevent an occurrence. You know, they'll never thank you enough because half the time they won't even realize that you did prevent it. So put money into the technology that can help you prevent it. It'll help you not only prevent the incidents, but it'll help you on your exams when you can say, yes, we do this. Here's our FACTA red flag procedures. So we do protect our customers from identity theft. And here are the service providers that help us monitor account transactions for anomalies, things like that. In a more old school sense, throw competition out the door when it comes to fraud. Get involved with working groups in your area link up with fellow BSA officers and compliance experts from neighboring institutions. One of the things I loved about the credit union world was that they were all inherently less competitive with one another than banks, 
But even when it came to fraud, any lingering competition went out the door because if we were having an issue with something, it almost certainly was affecting one of the other credit unions in town as well. Then also make sure that you're registered with FinCEN for the 314 program because that program not only allows you to share fraud information with your peers, but it actually encourages it. So if you say, hey, I think this guy opened up this account just to launder money, or I think something shady is going on with this wire transfer, you can call the other FI involved in that transaction and say, hey, I'm the 314 contact for institution A, you're the 314 contact for institution B, let's stamp this fraud out before it occurs. And at the end of the day, it may not be fraud, but you have the ability to share the information to validate whether it is or it isn't. So not everything has to be a high-tech expensive source of uh, fraud mitigation. Sometimes it's picking up the phone and knowing who to call. Those are the most important things. So Andy, one last question, and this is kind of on point while you're still in your detective mindset. When it comes to making a persuasive case for someone to take an action that you think they should take, who's the tougher audience, a federal prosecutor or the C-suite at a banking institution? Uh, definitely the C-suite, because there is penalty for failure in the C-suite. If we spend money on something that doesn't work out, then that's my head on the chopping block. Uh, you can go to trial and lose in federal court, and while it's a bummer, it's not the end of the day. But in this era of hyper-competitive business and shrinking revenue and budgets and things like that, businesses can't afford to miss when it comes to big expenditures. And fraud is sometimes a very tough one to sell or fraud mitigation is a tough one to sell because there's not an obvious revenue bump for it. It's more a loss reduction than it is a revenue increase. So I've always got an uphill battle to sell those kind of functionalities or products to the executives here. Not sure why that should be such a tough sell. I mean, an increase in revenue or a decrease in cost via lower losses. Dollar for dollar, they look the same on the bottom line, right? Anyway, Andy Shank, VP for Fraud and Risk Management Products at Harlan Clark, we certainly appreciate you sharing your views with us on the BAI Banking Strategies podcast. Thank you for having me. Look forward to doing it again. A few takeaways from our conversation on fraud protection with Andy Shank from Harlan Clark. First, he sorts fraud into two big buckets, a low-impact, high-frequency bucket that includes card fraud and check fraud, and a low-frequency, high-impact bucket that's exemplified by social engineering schemes and account takeovers. In Andy's view, banks and credit unions may be focusing too much of their attention on the more common low-impact bucket, even though the high-impact bucket carries more damage potential when measured in dollar terms. His best fraud prevention advice for financial institutions is to really invest in it. Not only does a well-funded anti-fraud effort stand to better protect the institution and its customers, it also demonstrates to regulators that you're serious about security. He also suggests that banks work together more on fraud since it's a threat that they all face. This kind of teamwork includes sharing fraud information with peers as allowed under the law. And finally, Andy believes that tech companies, internet providers, and device makers should take some interest in the upswing in high-impact fraud and then do more to help fight these crimes. Shutting off internet access to suspected bad guys is not feasible, he says, but what about limiting the number of active email addresses or clamping down on rogue IP addresses? Tech companies and ISPs can't end fraud, but they can make it harder to pull off. Thank you for listening to the BAI Banking Strategies Podcast. I'm Terry Badger, Managing Editor at BAI. Please join us again next time for another conversation on an important topic for the financial services industry.